Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. This was the moment when Donald Trump lost his megaphone. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. That was Donald Trump's video response to January 6th, issued hours after the Capitol had been stormed by a violent mob of insurrectionists. Trump used that moment to once again repeat the very election lies that had motivated the rioters to storm the Capitol in the first place, and then told that violent mob that they were, quote, very special. That video and another post denying the election were the straws that finally broke the camel's back over at America's largest social media companies. For years, Trump had been allowed to use websites like Twitter and Facebook to vilify immigrants and religious groups, to promote violence against media organizations and individual journalists, to spread poisonous lies to tens of millions of his followers. All of that had real-world consequences. A 2018 study from the University of Warwick found Trump's anti-Islam tweets may have been associated with an increase in anti-Muslim hate crimes. A 2020 analysis from the Brookings Institution found that severe toxicity and online threats towards Trump's targets increased in the immediate aftermath of his tweets. But on January 6th, as the country came closer than it ever has to a violent coup, those social media companies finally realized they could not keep giving Trump a platform. So Twitter and Facebook banned Donald Trump. And that was a big deal. Prior to the ban, Trump had nearly 88 million followers on Twitter and another 35 million on Facebook. Facebook in particular had been key to Donald Trump's success ever since his first presidential run. In a 2017 interview with 60 Minutes, Brad Parscale, who was Trump's digital campaign guru, Parscale said it was Facebook, not Twitter, that had elected Donald Trump. I understood early that Facebook was how Donald Trump was going to win. Twitter is how he talked to the people. Facebook was going to be how he won. I think Facebook is, was the method. It was the highway in which his car drove on. Parscale would later explain that the Trump campaign was able to spend significantly less money than the Clinton campaign because Trump's campaign used Facebook advertising. Facebook charged less for its content, and that content was in turn more likely to be spread as clickbait. This is what Parscale concluded in 2018. Donald Trump was a perfect candidate for Facebook. So Facebook did all of that for Trump, well before January 6th, when the company finally decided to suspend Trump from the platform for two years. The decision back then was announced by Meta's head of global affairs, a man named Nick Clegg. To give you a sense of just how powerful that role is at America's largest social media giant, Nick Clegg's job prior to joining Facebook was the deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom. Not a small job. When announcing the two-year suspension, Clegg said in a statement, at the end of this period, we will look to experts to assess whether the risk to public safety has receded. We will evaluate external factors, including instances of violence, restrictions on peaceful assembly, and other markers of civil unrest. If we we being Meta, determine that there is still a serious risk to public safety, we will extend the restriction 
for a set period of time and continue to reevaluate until that risk has receded. So Meta was going to wait two years, and if there was still a risk that Trump would encourage violent insurrectionists to take up arms against their government, well, then Meta would continue to ban Donald Trump from its site. In the two years since that announcement, Donald Trump has continued to spread lies, and he has escalated his election conspiracies. He has endorsed and promoted several high-profile election deniers as candidates for state office. He has gone even farther in embracing the violent rioters from that day on January 6th, arguing regularly that they should be pardoned. Just today, he put out a new video suggesting that January 6th was a false flag operation by the FBI. And the violence spurred by his election lies, that violence has only gotten worse. We saw that this month when an election denier and Republican candidate in New Mexico was arrested after firing gunshots at the homes of state Democratic officials. We saw that with the violent attack on the husband of former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, which was carried out by a follower of Trump's election lies. We saw it last year when one of the people who was at the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, when one of those men fired a nail gun into an FBI field office in Cincinnati, Ohio. What Meta executive Nick Clegg called the serious risk to public safety, that has not gone away. It may not be a mob storming the Capitol, but the violence is very much still there, and it is happening in ongoing and discreet ways. And yet, today, Meta announced that it was lifting its suspension of Donald Trump from Facebook and Instagram, once again allowing Trump access to the social media site that fueled his rise. Nick Clegg explained that decision today in an exclusive interview with my colleague, Hallie Jackson. How can you say that in this country, the risk of political violence has receded? I think we, you know, what we're essentially doing is comparing it to the circumstances which led to his two-year suspension in the first place. So I, I'm not saying everything is perfect. No one is. But we're saying that if you compare it to the circumstances which led to his original suspension, we think the risk to public safety has, has materially and significantly receded. But that is also the reason why we are introducing those additional guardrails to discourage him from breaking our rules going forward if he chooses to use Facebook and Instagram again. We think the risk to public safety has materially and significantly receded. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman from California, Ro Khanna. Congressman Khanna, thank you for making time tonight. Let's just start with your reaction to the assertion on the part of Meta that the threat of violence has sufficiently receded. Do you agree with that? I do not. I certainly think there are a lot of people uh, in the Capitol who don't agree with that. Unfortunately, a lot of colleagues who still receive uh, death threats and uh, travel around with security. Uh, but, Alex, I'm a classical liberal, and I do believe very strongly in free speech and in getting different viewpoints. And it's a very difficult situation where you have someone who's leading the Republican nomination uh, for president to say that they should not have a forum on essentially a modern public square. So I guess where I come out is if they're going to lift the ban, uh, but take action to ban him again, if he has any posts that incites violence, that seems like a reasonable compromise. So you sound confident that the new guardrails that Meta has rolled out will be sufficient to keep Trump in check. 
I don't know if it'll be sufficient to keep him in check, but it seems to me uh, that it is reasonable as long as Facebook follows through. So under Brandenburg, our First Amendment law, which I think should inform Facebook because it's one of the greatest uh, uh, decisions along with New York Times Sullivan, if someone is posting or saying something that incites violence, uh, that actually is not protected speech. And if Donald Trump does that, uh, again, like he was doing in, on January 6th, there should be a clear consequence for that, and he should be removed. Uh, so I guess the question is, are they going to enforce those guardrails? I mean, I guess that, that the question of, like, what is inciting violence and what is just tough talk? I mean, is suggesting the election was stolen and directing supporters to target election officials un, in an unspecified manner is— is that tough talk? Is that inciting violence? I mean, how do you how do you draw the line? And are you confident that internally Meta has the the systems and the personnel to to sort of make those very tough calls? Alex, I think it's a great point. That's why I think they should look to First Amendment jurisprudence. I mean, those calls are made all the time by our, our judges, and it has to be imminent the threat. Uh, it has to actually be leading to violence. Just tough words are not enough. And that was actually New York Times versus Sullivan, often to protect, frankly, the civil rights movement or anti-Vietnam protesters saying you can't just censor speech uh, if it is provocative. Uh, this, this First Amendment jurisprudence protects not just conservatives, but liberals. But my concern is that a private corporation like Meta, do they really have the independent jurists to be making those kind of decisions in a way that has the public trust? And I guess that's my broad broader criticism of some of the social media companies, that you have a few people who are multi-billionaires uh, making these decisions about speech in society. I understand why the Supreme Court or judges are making it, but now you've got private companies making it. Let me just ask you one question about why Meta's making this decision right now. Yes, the suspension was up. It had been two years since Trump was officially taken off of Facebook and Instagram. But we also know that House Republicans have been very clear about uh, targeting, if you will, big tech and, and calling, calling some of those CEOs up to the Hill and, and effectively asking them some very tough questions, if not more, about a perceived uh, left-wing bias. Do you think that this is an effort to curry favor, uh, the replatforming of Trump? Do you think this is an effort to curry favor with House Republicans now that they're running the show? I don't. I think they are sensitive uh, tech to criticism from lawmakers on both sides. I mean, we were in the majority. We were very critical and of the antitrust issues uh, with big tech and the lack of privacy issues. I think here there are concerns on censorship. But, Alex, the censorship is often against the left more than the right. I mean, the top 10 most popular sites on Facebook, nine out of 10 of them are conservative sites. They're not liberal sites. So I don't think there's some conservative bias. My candid assessment is I think they looked at it that Donald Trump is a leading candidate for president for the Republican Party, like it or not. He may be the Republican nominee. Uh, and they didn't think that they wanted him off uh, modern public squares uh, in that position. Yeah. I mean, what we know from the January 6th committee is that Team Purple, which was dedicated specifically to examine the role of social media in the January 6th insurrection, found a bias towards Trump that some of his violent incitement was not censored in the way that it should have been because tech companies were so worried about being perceived as anti-conservative. Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat from California, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank now you. Let's, now let's turn to Anand Giridardis, MSNBC political analyst and author of The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds and Democracy. Talk about a prescient title for this conversation, Anand. 
So it's interesting. It's a it's a conundrum of sorts, right? There's Ro Khan, a Democrat from California, saying, look, I think effectively this is the right call because Donald Trump is a candidate for president, which is a hard thing to say again in the 2024 uh, race. Do you see this as a tough call? Should Trump be replatformed? Is the threat of violence, has that subsided to the degree that it's safe, quote unquote, now to bring him back to the platform that in many ways made him? With respect to my uh, my my brother, Ro, who I who I love, I, I think sen- the issue of censorship is an issue about what can governments do. Mm-hmm. And I think the question of whether a private platform uh, would be wise to have a known inciter of insurrection and political violence back on the platform. Uh, it is a foolish choice. What Nick Clegg was saying is, is disgraceful. The idea that the risk of political violence has receded since then. And look, there's a comic side to this, which is that a, a man, Mark Zuckerberg, who presumably invented an app because he was unable to you know, talk to girls in person in, in college, is now has kind of ambled his way to building one of the most destructive forces on Earth that is now going to be re-unleashed in the hands of the most dangerous president in American history, who's actively devoted to fomenting political violence and ending liberal democracy mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, so, you know, good for you, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, donating all your money to charity and trying to get all these good marks while literally selling America down the down the river into autocracy. Um, but, but what do you really would, think of Facebook, Anand? But where I would agree with the congressman is I think this is, like it or not, the environment the political left is in. Mm-hmm. It's in an environment in which one platform or another, or maybe all of them, is going to invite this stuff back. These plutocrats are going to stand with Donald Trump eventually for business reasons. I think the sea of disinformation is what it is, as much as you and I might deplore it. And I actually think the left needs to move beyond the hope of banning things, mm-hmm. investigating and indicting people, uh, deploring and getting mad, I think the only way to beat this menace is to out-compete it, is to out-compete it, out-organize it, and build a bigger, more attractive, more passionate movement than that movement. And the reality is, and that's at, at the heart of what The Persuaders is about, I don't think such a movement is what we have right now. Yeah. I think it's what we could have. But I think at some level, complaining to the ref in this environment is not a winning political wow. strategy. I mean, I'm not ready to give up on the idea that uh, Trump being replatformed is a dangerous idea that maybe should be dealt with in the immediate. Oh, I think it right? should I be. Just, I just don't think it will be because we've been waiting for mommy or daddy to come save us from Bob Mueller onwards well, but, for wait, years but, but the, the and no one has come to save us. For two years, us. he wasn't on the platform. I mean, there was there was a measure taken and that was a meaningful measure to not have him on Twitter, mm-hmm. to not have him on Facebook, to not have him be able to advertise off of poisonous lies that are destroying the democracy. That, that was a meaningful step, which is now being reversed. And I want to ask if you think there's any chance, and I feel like I now know what your answer is going to be here, that that Facebook has the, the quote unquote keepers of the guardrails who would, will do the job they need to do, or whether the standards they're even setting at the beginning of this are the right ones. I want to play a little bit more sound from Hallie Jackson's interview with Nick Clegg. She basically presses Nick Clegg on, on what exactly the threshold is at which Trump will be deplatformed again. And this is that exchange. It sounds to me like what you are saying is if former President Trump delegitimizes the next election by lying about it, 
that's not enough to get him suspended. He'd have to go further and do something that you believe would create real world and imminent harm. Fair? Yes, there's a distinction between accuracy and harm. Um, people talk nonsense on the internet all the time. People say things which are half true, which are not true at all. We're not a truth police. Never have been and will never seek to be. What we do have an obligation and a responsibility is to make sure that people don't use our apps and our services in a way which can lead to real world harm, violence uh, and so on. And that's where we draw the line. Okay, we're not a truth police. And it's, he sees a real church and state between people saying crazy things on the internet and real world violence and harm, that there's not an interlinkage between the two. But we know factually that is not true. I mean, Trump decrying the FBI for the raid on Mar-a-Lago leads A to B to a man going to a Cincinnati FBI field office and shooting, trying to sh harm FBI officers with a nail gun. Today, he's tweeting about, or he's truth socialing about January 6th being a false flag operation at the hands of the FBI. There is a meaningful consequence to these lies, and yet that seems lost on the officials over at Meta. What more evidence do people need that harmful rhetoric in the world of Trump, often leads to actual harm. I think there's just no doubt of that connection. Um, and a lot of the people who could educate about the, uh, us about that are dead right now uh, because of that incitement over the last many years. But here's the thing. This is not a social media problem alone. This is a big business problem yeah. in the age of Trump. And if you are a regular person watching this who does not own or run a massive company, you have witnessed over the last six, seven years Big companies in this country face a choice when there is a rising authoritarian, increasingly fascistic movement on offer on the ballot that is, yes, doing some good things for big business when it actually is in power. Uh, do big businesses that store your money, you know, that, that fly you places, that, that are where you trust for your work and your kids' lives and whatever else businesses do for us, do those businesses defend just the basic idea that you should live in a free society. And it turns out almost none of them have lines. Almost none of them have moral lines. So what you're illustrating tonight is one, is one kind of expression of what we have realized across the financial sector, across mm -hmm. the aviation sector, across every sector in this country. None of these big businesses will put the people watching this above their own bottom line shareholder interests. And so Facebook uh, is going gonna, is gonna to sell us down the river. And it's incredible that these people in Silicon Valley, like Mark Zuckerberg, who talked about liberating the world, talked about empowering people. Sheryl Sandberg, you know, sold that lean-in book telling women thousands of years of patriarchy was actually just a posture problem. If they leaned and raised their hand more, they could overcome it while selling the, you know, the country down to a misogynistic authoritarian leader. I mean, these people aren't going to save us. And I, I say to you again, I think the only answer is building a bigger, more powerful, attractive movement than the other side. Everything else is a distraction. Anand Gerardardis, MSNBC political analyst and author of The Persuaders. Thank you for joining us, Anand. Thank it's you great to me. see you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says an AP course on African-American studies, quote, lacks educational value. We're going to head down to Florida to discuss the pushback today in the Sunshine State. And Kevin McCarthy says he will hold George Santos to the, quote, same standard as everyone else in Congress. I am not so sure about that. Congressman Jamal Bowman joins me to discuss. That's next.
that he's lied about his past, he's admitted to lying about his past, you've stood by him. Are you standing by him simply because if he resigned, that could cost you a seat? No. You know why I'm standing by him? Because his constituents voted for him. Now, I will hold him to the same standard I hold anyone else elected to Congress. That was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy attempting to clarify his decision to stand by Republican Congressman George Santos, despite the incredible web of lies George Santos has spun about everything from his volleyball stardom to his MBA, to his Wall Street career, to his brain tumor, to his survival of an assassination attempt. And yesterday, Santos made a significant revision to his 2022 campaign filings, specifying that a $500,000 loan he made to his campaign didn't actually come from his personal funds, as he, as he had said earlier. And now, unlike the volleyball lies and the fake assassination attempts, the campaign finance violations have the potential to land Santos in some serious legal jeopardy. So with all that in mind, what does the leader of the GOP caucus, Kevin McCarthy, what does he do with a problem like George Santos? Yesterday, McCarthy vowed to hold Santos to the same standards he holds other members of Congress. Let's look at those standards. After Republicans reclaimed the House majority in 2010 in the midterm elections, party leaders, including Kevin McCarthy, announced a zero-tolerance policy for members caught up in embarrassing controversies. Hmm. And those standards were quickly put to the test. In February of 2011, then-Republican Congressman Chris Lee of New York was caught trying to meet women through the personal section of Craigslist. Do you remember this one? And there was no delay in this case, no standing by Chris Lee. Republicans wanted Chris Lee gone, and Chris Lee resigned. Then in 2014, Republican Congressman Vance McAllister of Louisiana was filmed kissing a staffer who was not his wife. And Kevin McCarthy and his fellow GOP friends, they said, nope, you gotta go. And Vance McAllister resigned. Those standards, less than a decade later, those, standards, those standards have been lowered. A lot. Because Kevin McCarthy didn't just hold that press conference yesterday to tell the country he was basically okay for now or maybe forever with George Santos's lies. He also told the press about his decision to kick Democratic congressmen Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell off the House Intelligence Committee because they, quote, lied to the American public and because, quote, integrity matters to Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy also told his Republican colleagues in a closed-door meeting today that he also intends to remove Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee because of past comments she made about Israel, comments, by the way, she has since apologized for. George Santos, meanwhile, a serial liar with potential campaign finance violations and a completely fabricated resume, in that same closed-door meeting, Kevin McCarthy told his conference that George Santos will continue serving on two committees unless the House Ethics Committee determines he's broken a law. Because, you know, integrity matters. Joining us now to discuss all this is Democratic Congressman for New York's 16th Congressional District, Jamal Bowman. Congressman, it is great to see you. How is the mood inside the Democratic caucus as we see these decisions on the part of the Speaker of the House? The Democratic caucus is focused, laser-like focused, on winning the House back in 2024. And we're going to do everything in our power to implement 
the legislation that we passed, the historic legislation that we've passed over the last two years. So that is our focus. We're also going to continue to draw the contrast between the dysfunctional circus that is the Republican Party and Democrats delivering for the American people. What's dangerous is Republicans are engaging in psychological warfare against the American people. They consistently lie. They consistently mislead. They consistently use misinformation to act as if that is the way you are supposed to govern. And what it does, it creates fear, it creates uncertainty, and it creates frustration amongst the American people, and it leads the American people to further distrust their elected officials and turns them away from the political process. And what happens—and what, what does that lead to? That leads to people not voting which is the only way Republicans can win. They can't win on the issues. They have to lie and mislead and create fear and dysfunction and chaos. Look at what happened January 6th. And now they're forming this sham committee to investigate absolutely nothing. And they allow Santos to serve on committees while going after three Democrats who have more character and integrity and leadership in their pinky finger than Kevin McCarthy has had over his entire career. I, I fully appreciate, and I think it's not said enough, the really cancerous effect that all this lying and deceit and well-poisoning has on American democracy. It fundamentally makes us a less participatory democracy, right? People get so disgusted and turned off by the circus that they say, what's the point? I mean, and I, and that is pernicious, right? That's a, that's a deeply cynical strategy, if that indeed is a strategy of the GOP. But it also seems to be just this weird, as you point out, psyops against Democrats. Like, they looked at everything Democrats did, whether it was investigating interference, whether it's looking at national security in January 6th, and they decided to flip it on its head. And now we're in this strange upside down parallel universe where Republicans are basically just spending their time in Congress gaslighting Democrats. My question to you is, there have got to be freshmen. There have got to be swing district Congress people inside the caucus, the Republican caucus, who are looking at this and saying, this is insane. Is there is there any conversation happening between Democrats and the Republicans who see what's going on and saying this is how we lose power? So, yes, and that's something that gives me optimism and gives me hope. As we were going through the process of the 15 votes that led to Speaker McCarthy, there were Republicans walking over to the Democrat side, walking over to people like me and telling me, this is BS. The far right in our party, they've already received all of the concessions that they wanted. And they're still dragging this thing out for attention, for fundraising, and for whatever else they, they, they want to have the American people focus on. So there are still some principled Republicans that actually want to govern. Some, not a lot. There's still too many MAGA Republicans, still too many extremist Republicans. I have Republicans now coming up to me from different parts of the country, rural parts of the country, who want to have coffee, who want to sit down, who want to get to know me and build relationships. That's what leadership is. That's what governing is. Unfortunately, there are too many Republicans that are still beholden to Trump, MAGA, QAnon, January 6th, and now McCarthy and Jim Jordan. And God only knows where they're going to take us. And one other thing I want to mention, the more dysfunctional we are, the more we give power 
to the corporatocracy and the wealthy elite in our country who control members of Congress in the first place because of big money and dark money and politics. And those are the donors who support many of the Republicans we're talking about. So this is an insidious plan that is sort of almost an insurrection from within mm similar to the insurrection that happened from without on January 6th. Well, also, the less, the more you atrophy the federal government, the more power is in private actors, including corporate mega corporations. We'll set, we'll set that aside for a moment. I just got to ask you, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is now sitting on uh, uh, one of the committees that is tasked with examining the COVID crisis. This is someone who was literally suspended from social media for promoting COVID lies is now, I mean, the Fox is literally not just in the hen house. The Fox has like built the hen house and is sitting on top of the hen house. And then you have like Chip Roy and Dan Bishop who are, you know, now sitting on the uh, weaponization of the federal government committee. These committees are they, I mean, they're, they are going to be circuses, of course, but Congress needs to do—Congress has business to do. And my question is, like, what is the attitude of Democrats who are in the minority, who are seated on some of these committees? What is the posture going to be as the, as the, as the, as the clowns run the clown show? First of all, I wish Majority Taylor Greene was still on the Education and Workforce Committee so I could eviscerate her when she comes with the nonsense on that committee. But my colleagues are going to eviscerate them on those committees as well, because they're going to continue to come with misinformation, alternative facts, lack of— uh, uh, peer-reviewed research, and my colleagues are going to shred them. And it's going to happen publicly. That's the only positive thing about this. To your point, we have business to do in evolving our democracy towards what it can be. And this Republican-led House is going to show that it doesn't have the ability to do that. So what, what do we have to do that's going to help us win back the House in 2024? It's going to help us to grow our numbers in the Senate, because we have to evolve our democracy overall and deal with the issue of democracy reform, inequality, woman's right to choose, uh, real gun legislation that bans assault rifles, and so many other areas of policy that we have to work on that this party is incapable of working on because they are so beholden to uh, remnants and tenets of white supremacy. Democratic congressman for New York's 16th congressional district, part of the New York delegation that has Congressman George Santos in it. I'll have to get those stories from you later. Congressman Jamal Bowman, thanks for your time, as always. Thank you so much. Just ahead, Ron DeSantis wants to decide how African-American studies should be taught in Florida schools. And today, he received a legal warning from Florida educators, state lawmakers, and students. That's next. Today, the alleged shooter in Monday's mass shooting in the coastal community of Half Moon Bay, California, had his first appearance in court. Now, there's inevitably going to be a lot of discussion about this shooter's motive and, of course, his mental state, but that discourse shouldn't happen in a vacuum. It's important to zoom out a bit. In 2019, there was a shooting at a Torrance, California bowling alley that left three dead and four injured. I'm sure by now you have seen the footage of the Monterey Park shooter being found in his white van by police the morning after killing 11 and wounding nine others on Saturday night. That van was found just about 500 feet from the site of that 2019 shooting, which is a two-minute walk. 
You don't even need to leave the parking lot. Shootings like these happen so often, that kind of proximity is almost bound to happen. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 40 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year. We are 25 days in, and there have been 40 mass shootings. Now, you can examine the motives and the mental health issues of mass shooters forever, and you will find overlaps. But like this parking lot in Torrance, California, that is not the causal factor here. This parking lot is not somehow a magnet for mass shootings. These shootings just happen that often. The one real through line here, the thing that touches every mass shooting in this country, is that guns are incredibly easy to obtain. In 2019, then-California Senator Kamala Harris tweeted that her heart broke for the victims of the Torrance Bowling Alley shooting. Tonight, Vice President Kamala Harris is again responding to another California mass shooting. She brought flowers to the site of the shooting earlier and is now meeting privately with families of the victims. As she was leaving the site of that shooting, she had this to say. Can this Congress do anything? They absolutely can. They have the power to. Can they do something? Yes. Should they do something? Yes. Will they do something? That is where we all must speak up. We'll be right back. For 93 years, this monument to the Confederacy sat outside the Manatee County Historic Courthouse in Bradenton, Florida. It honors the traitors who lost the Civil War, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and Jefferson Davis. It was a gift from the local chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who unveiled it in 1924 at an elaborate event as an orchestra played Swanee River, a popular minstrel song at the time, on the courthouse lawn. This tribute came almost 60 years after the end of the Civil War. The United Daughters of the Confederacy helped lead the effort to shift the narrative of the Civil War by rewriting and sanitizing American history and literature after the Civil War. In 2017, after the deadly protests over the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, Virginia, the county commissioners in Manatee voted four to three to remove that Confederate statue and put it in a, quote, equally prominent, respectful location. But gravity had other plans. The monument toppled over as it was removed from its pedestal, and it broke into pieces, which were then placed in storage. Five years later, Manatee County now has some new commissioners, all Republicans, who have voiced support for an effort to not only put the pieces of that Confederate memorial back together, but to reinstall it at the Manatee County Historic Courthouse. That matter is now listed as an agenda item for the county commissioner's meeting next Tuesday, where it may come up for a vote and it may very well pass. Manatee County could find itself in the unique position of erecting a monument to the Confederacy in the year 2023. Because those century-old efforts to shift the narrative of the Civil War, those, those efforts are alive and well in the state of Florida. Last spring, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a bill that requires schools to publish lists of all school library content and requires a state-trained media specialist to select all reading materials based on vague state academic standards. Basically, if Governor DeSantis believes a book will indoctrinate Florida youths, educators can be slapped with a felony if that book is on a school library or classroom library shelf. That law is in effect this semester, which is why Manatee County classroom library shelves that once looked like that have transformed this week to this. Books 
papered over with a sticky note that says closed by order of the governor. That's where the library shelf used to be. This tactic that Governor DeSantis is using, policing American education, is straight out of the playbook of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. That is the mantle that Governor DeSantis has picked up more than a century later. And this week, Governor DeSantis rejected a new high school advanced placement course on African-American studies because he said he believed it pushed an agenda and that it lacked educational value. But today, civil rights attorney Ben Crump, alongside a group of Florida students, threatened to file a lawsuit over the DeSantis administration's decision to reject that AP course on African-American studies. The DeSantis or anybody exterminate black history in the classrooms across America. No. Yeah, what this really is about is saying you cannot exterminate us. You cannot exterminate our culture. And you can never exterminate the value of our children to this world. Joining us now is Frederick Ingram, Secretary Treasurer of the American Federation of Teachers and former president of the Florida Education Association. He also spoke at that press conference today. Mr. Ingram, thank you for being here tonight. Let me just first start with how you have what you have heard from teachers who are in the classrooms trying to navigate this treacherous terrain. Sure. Uh, and, and listen, thank you for having me. Uh, as a as a Floridian, I'm embarrassed. As a as a parent, I'm I'm appalled. And as an educator, I'm concerned. And that's really what we're hearing from educators. Uh, but this is not the first uh, strike or blow to uh, African Americans or the education system or to teachers at large. This is one of many steps that uh, Ron DeSantis has done. He has banned books in Florida. He has uh, tried to uh, suppress teacher voices. He has he has tried to take over school boards. And this is just one in the many uh, idioms that he is doing to try and uh, educate some of our children and not educate others. Uh, and this is appalling. Uh, this is something that we should be concerned about because he's putting politics squarely on the backs of children, squarely on the backs of our hardworking teachers, my colleagues, who we should be talking about a value system. We should be talking about what our students need, what our communities need, uh, the books that they're reading, the curriculums that they, uh, uh, you, you know, that we need actually to educate our children. And we're talking about Ron DeSantis banning uh, an AP of African-American course between the window of the commemoration of Dr. Martin Luther King and the uh, beginning of Black History Month. How what an insult that is to African-Americans at large and, and, and how concerned we should be uh, as a society. And, and, and the timing of it, as you point out, is so egregious on the eve of Black History Month. But I, I mean, I, I guess I wonder, as we talk about all of this, there's the, the measures he has enacted, which are specific and pernicious. But there is also the climate of fear that he has established, which casts a much wider net over the classroom, does it not? I mean, it's not that he's banned every book, but he's made, made it so that teachers are now, A, self-censoring in their lessons, but B, just not even dealing with school libraries, not even wanting to loan out books for fear of getting slapped with a felony. What are they telling you about how they can actually teach in an environment like this? Listen. Our history is good, bad, and some ugly. What we want to do is teach the truth. 
We want to give kids the information so that they can grow up and be good deciders in our society so that they can make decisions that are in the best interest of themselves, their families, our communities, and they can learn to give back uh, to our democracy. That's what teachers ultimately want. And that's what we want for every single kid. But teachers are scared right now. Uh, we have history teachers that don't know whether to teach slavery or don't know whether to teach uh, reconstruction or civil rights or what, you know, exactly is going to get them in trouble. You know, we've got a gotcha kind of politic going on where Ron DeSantis has taken over school boards, where Ron DeSantis is trying to uh, strong arm our, our hardworking teachers. And by the way, uh, our teachers are speaking with their feet because we have over 5,000 classrooms in the state of Florida that do not have a certified class, a certified teacher. And that is direct connection to what's happening to our classrooms by uh, this uh, current uh, administration. So teachers are leaving the classroom because they don't want to deal with this. And what are the students? I mean, what about the students who don't get taught slavery that year, don't learn about Reconstruction? I mean, don't learn about the civil rights era. It's not like you can just do 10th grade again or 11th grade or whatever grade it is. Where are they going for information? Yeah, so this is a democracy, and we should be concerned that our students get all of the information that they need. So let me highlight to you where they are getting African-American history. We have four uh, very prestigious HBCUs in the state of Florida, and I'm very proud of what they're doing to teach that African-American history. But this is an AP uh, African-American history class that should be offered as an option to our students in our high schools. It would take our best and brightest students to take this class. They would have to be interested. They would have to self-select this class. And not having an equal opportunity to take that class is doing a disservice to these students. In fact, when you don't know uh, what your history is, uh, in many cases, and I'm paraphrasing, you have failed uh, and doomed to repeat that history. And so we don't want to repeat bad history. What we want to do is educate our kids. And AP African-American history is American history. Black people, uh, African-Americans have, have been at the very fabric and fiber of everything that is good in this country, from perseverance to making sure that we uh, promote our culture through song and dance and art and culture and the sciences uh, and education. And so as Mary McLeod Bethune would, would, would tell you, one of the greatest educators that I've ever known and a, uh, a Floridian, uh, she would tell you, leave these children with love. Leave them with uh, a sense of a, a zeal so that they never lose their thirst for building a better world. And we do that through our classrooms and our schools and education. Frederick Ingram, Secretary Treasurer of the American Federation of Teachers and former president of the Florida Education Association. Mr. Ingram, thank you for your time tonight and good luck in the struggle. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's the show for this evening. We will see you again tomorrow. 